This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! The trust of the innocent is the liar's most useful tool. Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2019, Episode 2. My name is Theta, and today's show is a thorough analysis of Episode 4 of The Promised Neverland. We will be returning to the Darling-style long looks from now on, a robust walkthrough followed by our story aspect breakdown. Um, one quick mention before beginning, we have had four cliffhangers in a row in our series so far, and so a lot of the story probably depends on big reveals. Spoilers are particularly damaging to that kind of tale, so I remind everyone not to mention or even hint about future events in the comments section for the good of others. Um, related to that, my show contains a section on speculation. It is always the very last category, so that you can skip it if you don't want to risk my guesses being actual spoilers in retrospect. Today has one that may be particularly spoilerific if it pans out, so I have further made it the last thing in that section. That said, let's look at our episode. This episode begins with a small bit where we see Norman hiding some of the linen rope in a bag underneath his bed. We don't have context for this scene's inclusion at the time, but in retrospect, lingering over the thoughtful way he lays this bait suggests that he already knows what to expect. Our first full scene involves Crone and Isabella having a conversation about Crone's time in the house thus far. We are now up to October 29th, so she has been here for a little under two weeks. Throughout the scene, Isabella is cool and in control, while Crone is visibly anxious. This is consistent with the characterizations we noted before, that Crone is more emotional and overt in her expressiveness, while Isabella is even keeled and adopts whichever persona suits her in the moment. Crone is ostensibly in trouble here, as Isabella will tell her not to make any more mistakes from now on when they conclude. This, too, helps us understand more about the two of them as characters. Isabella may be a chameleon, but she addresses matters directly instead of using vague hints or threats. She knows Crone wants to be a mom, and states their quid pro quo arrangement out loud. She knows that Crone thinks she has something over her for her mistake, and knows that Crone is trying to figure out which children are in on the secret. She knows she's only pretending to be obedient, and says so out loud. She even tells her that she had reservations about Crone due to her tomboy nature, which especially seems like the kind of thing she could have just kept to herself. Instead, Isabella puts all this information out there and plays no games. This is just like the way she didn't hesitate to tell Crone the whole truth about why she was there. It suggests that the one thing she has held back, the exact identity of the children in the know, is something she is keeping secret for strategic value. 
Perhaps she knows that this would give Crone too much leverage, enabling her to make a play for her own benefit. By contrast, Crone is not so straightforward, even trying to deflect when Isabella tells her to laugh that she's grasped some sort of weakness over her. She tries to be much more diplomatic and ingratiating in the way she speaks to Isabella. Part of this, of course, is the power dynamic between them, a boss and her underling, uh, but it's also part of who they are and how they pursue what they want. Crone hopes to get what she wants by pretending to be compliant and currying favor with the children. Isabella, on the other hand, is confident in her ability to outmaneuver everyone else, the kids, Crone, even the demon society. Putting all of this out in the open for Crone is a power play, letting Crone know that she won't be able to get one over on her. She doesn't punish her, but is relying on her own mastery of the situation to be the deterrent against future misbehavior. We are meant to come away from this exchange realizing that Isabella is a formidable opponent indeed. However, Isabella is a mostly dispassionate decision maker, and perhaps can underestimate the emotional wildcard. Crone leaves the meeting suitably chastised, but once she is alone, her feeling of defeat turns into anger. Isabella has just promised to assist her in becoming a mom, which is the thing she wants, but this humiliation instead stokes a spiteful resolve. She now wants to ensure she drags Isabella down. She has become more than just a stepping stone to her true goal. The baby doll once again figures into her unfettered emotional display, and holding it and staring at its misshapen form precipitates the mood swing. I still suspect, then, that Crone sees something of herself in that doll. I mean, it's an odd totem to keep around, no? It has huge stitches that look more like a badly healed scar, mismatched eyes, mismatched legs, and it's covered in stains. It looks less like a well-loved and well-worn keepsake, and more like Frankenstein's monster. This impression is reinforced for me by her treatment of it. It's not a precious heirloom she protects and preserves, it's basically a child-shaped punching bag that she also sometimes confides in. Is it emblematic of her inner child? Something she cannot abandon, yet also something she both loves and hates? Does it represent some ugliness she sees in herself, or that existed in her childhood? When Isabella made a quip about her being a tomboy, she changed her expression immediately. Is that a sore subject for her? And did Isabella make that comment while knowing it would get to her? I know I'm hung up on this, it's just kind of a fascinating quirk of hers. Here is someone who wants to wear the title of mom, who is a caretaker of children that are not her own, something that, stripped of its context, may seem very nurturing and magnanimous. Instead, they are raising kids of their own species as food for another, but do so with a grand deception. Just as a baby doll is a prop for playing house or pretending to motherhood, so too are these caretakers only playing at being mother. It's a completely twisted version of motherhood, and she has a fittingly twisted version of a doll. I suppose it should be no surprise that she can wrench its head off, considering what she is capable of when it comes to real flesh and blood children. We visit our trio next, Hanging Laundry. I remarked at the oddly non-technological nature of this orphanage last time, um, one of the things that happens regularly as background activity is the children performing household chores. I don't know if this is part of the overseer's strategy in raising high-quality children, or if it's simply pragmatism to use all of this free labor lying around, but I do like that it usually gives some kind of variance in what they are doing when they have all of these scattered conversations. 
Having actual work to do gives cover for why they would be congregated in one place and chatting, but the way they share these chores also reinforces the community aspect of the orphanage. Sharing the burden and responsibility among them all keeps them connected and accountable for one another. And this is another one of those things that is ultimately going to work against the caretakers and the demons. Anyway, the discussion this time is about improving their tag as training bit by playing in teams. This gives a more viable strategy for the eventual escape for two reasons. One is a distributed command, creating lots of smaller units that can act and react autonomously rather than relying on a single decision maker or creating an every-man-for-himself scenario. The other is that it shores up the disparity in ability across our children thanks to their ages or capabilities. Additionally, having a group be the hunter group lets them see what it is like from the pursuer's point of view, a kind of know-thy-enemy approach to fighting back. Anyway, the actual discussion they have is another peek inside their personas. Norman initiates the conversation, Ray adds a bit of hard truth, and Emma reacts viscerally to the unpleasant idea. The advantage to the team idea is creating smaller and more nimble units, and the more leaders they have, the smaller the groups they can create. This naturally suggests bringing in more older children so they can subdivide further, and so the inner circle gets another expansion as they opt to tell Gilda and Dawn. However, the threat of a possible traitor hangs over them, and indeed will inform their decisions throughout most of this episode. Telling two more people increases the risk of a leak or sharing information with the traitor, but Norman says that he wants to find out the identity of the informant and win them over. That is, the traitor is not necessarily someone to avoid at all costs, but someone they want to uncover and, better yet, convert into an ally. Widening the circle of people who know the truth, cautiously, is a step on the way to this goal. Norman had already made arrangements, as he said, which means he brought up adding Don and Gilda with this secondary goal already in mind. This decided, Ray tells Emma he is going to give her a hundred types of formation patterns and for her to memorize them. Though obviously daunted at first, Emma is not going to shrink from this or admit as much when Ray is a step away from teasing her if she says she can't do it. Now, memorizing a hundred visual arrangements even by sight would be quite a feat. Never mind doing it from audible descriptions, Never mind asking it of an 11-year-old. This emphasizes to us that these kids are not just kind of smart, they are borderline savants. There was actually a moment of this on the adult side of things last episode, when Isabella presented Crone with the stack of child files and told her to memorize them right now. Crone grinned at the challenge and flipped through them incredibly fast. As she later can cite from those notes in the game of tag, it means this was no act. She really was memorizing them right then and there. This is the level of mental fencing occurring in the series, and giving us examples from both sides helps us accept the plausibility of it being a real contest of wits. If Emma can do what Ray is asking here, and she is not even the smart one in their trio, exactly how sharp are these guys? Anyway, we have a relatively short sequence of this team-based tag, with Isabella not failing to notice the change. We get to see the use of quiet hand signals, the kids coordinating in movement and taking direction, and of course, making the whole thing fun so the younger kids stay engaged. We even have Dawn wanting to be a leader of a group the next time around, which is just the kind of thing the trio is hoping for. They take a break, and our threesome has a moment to let the threat of the traitor seep back into their minds. 
Ray asks after Phil, one of the younger kids, as he has noticed his success in the games of tag. Emma tells us that Phil has been averaging around 203 on his scores lately, and Norman confirms that this is high. For reference, if you look back at our demons little shopping list, you can see that Gilda and Dawn score right around 200 themselves. Isabella is certainly aware of their relative scores, and such a bright mind in such an unassuming body would be a pretty great choice for a spy, especially an unwitting one. Then Ray suggests that Phil had shown a particular interest in hunting Emma and Norman in previous games. The possible implications here occur to Emma all at once, and she is none too pleased at the idea. It's just not in her nature to enjoy thinking ill of anyone, and so her first instinct, once again, is to try to deny or reject the possibility that she doesn't like. And again, Ray is the bearer of harsh truth, that she needs to be willing to suspect everyone. Considering what we now know about Ray, this is a pretty interesting thing for him to be so forceful about, right? Is both this and his insinuations about Phil just a way to divert their attention and throw them off his scent? Or is it also that he is at war with himself over this, and really does care about Emma and needs her to get past her naivete for her own good? Or is he simply playing both sides to hedge his bets? Emma entertains his urging to be more suspicious, and looking around at the rest of the kids, she is able to see potential conspirators everywhere. I'll talk more about this in theme. Perhaps because of noticing Emma's turmoil, Norman shifts the conversation to the tracking devices and Ray's role in combating them, which he says he can manage in 10 days. Then Norman decides that this will be their target date. Emma and Ray are understandably surprised. Ray seems more aghast than anything. I think this is only the second time we've seen him have the little distress sweat drop that is so common as visual shorthand in anime. They thought they had another month and a half before it was do or die, but that's the point. Isabella is probably also able to assume that they would figure out the pattern. To catch her off guard, they have to do the unexpected, even if it means cutting their preparations short. Ray's objections are not unfounded. It is possible they fail purely because of inadequate preparation, but Norman is also right that winter is a terrible time to try to survive in the unfamiliar land beyond. Escaping sooner may lower their chances of escaping, but it improves their chances of surviving long term if they can get over that hurdle. Of course, quite apart from Ray's calculation of whether the move improves or hurts their odds, he has the side game of being Isabella's informant as an additional consideration. We don't yet know all of Ray's motivations here, and what he was ultimately going to do when it came time to escape. It's something I'll explore a little more in speculation, but it may be that this cuts into his own timeline to figure out what he wants to do. In this respect, it may be that Norman's announcement of this plan is meant to push Ray to do something reckless himself, which I'll also revisit. He certainly is annoyed when running the changeover in his mind. Because of the accelerated timetable, they need to go ahead and tell Dawn and Gilda tonight. The scene ends with yet another view of a clock. Tick tock, tick tock. The lead in to revealing the plan to Dawn and Gilda begins with a long point of view shot to build suspense and shift our tone, something I'll return to in theme. Just before the trio enters, Emma asks the other two to follow her lead, which surprises Ray at the least. We skip past whatever Emma actually said to Dawn's reaction to it, a bit of storytelling efficiency that I applaud. We quickly realize that Emma did not tell them the whole truth, 
instead inventing some half-truth about the kids being trafficked to bad people. It's an interesting gamble that I'll expand on in later sections, but in scene, it works as a way to ease them in to the idea that their lives are not what they seem. I said it before that they were going to face a problem when it came time to share the truth. Emma's example proved how hard it was to accept even for someone witnessing things firsthand. It's already difficult for them to believe ill of Isabella, never mind the notion that they are all meant for a bad future rather than the happy adoption they imagine. The cognitive dissonance is acute and immediate. It's bewildering enough without adding crazy things like demons, eating brains, or strange red flowers. However, they don't need to know that second part in order to accept their course of action. They need to escape, they have little time to prepare, their caretakers are the enemy, and they need Dawn and Gilda's help. This is a huge gamble because they are not telling the whole truth, and if they do manage to escape, Dawn and Gilda are certain to learn more. That will erode the trust in the group, and if they find out the truth before the escape, then that just complicates matters further. However, it might have been a savvy compromise, especially considering that Emma is worried that one of them may be the spy. If they report back this inaccurate version of events, then it will potentially make Isabella doubt what they do or don't know. But even with this much easier to swallow fiction about human trafficking, Dawn's first impulse is to laugh, finding it so far beyond the pale that it could only be a weird joke. When they don't relent and admit to joking, the implication that their mom was the bad guy in all this makes him angry instead. He even puts his hands on Emma, but he gets interrupted from an unexpected direction. Gilda is actually able to accept this revelation and chastises Don for believing Emma would lie about something like that. It turns out that Gilda had taken note of Emma's change in mood since they went to the gate and knew that something was amiss. It's what she wanted to talk about when Emma was searching baby Carol for evidence of the tracking devices. Thus, when an explanation is provided, even as outlandish as it may have seemed in other contexts, she is ready to believe it. She knows Emma has experienced or learned something dramatic enough to cool her mood for weeks. This is such a departure from that happy, outgoing girl that began the series that it probably has had Gilda a little worried, a little scared. As awful as the story she hears is, it takes the frightening unknown of Emma's behavior and gives it enough context to make sense again. In fact, it could only have been something particularly terrible to have affected Emma in this way, so Gilda has likely been bracing for the worst. Her cognitive dissonance is actually resolved from the story rather than initiated. Emma's reaction to this revelation from Gilda is not relief that she is believed, but rather concern over the worry that she put her friend through. It's another reminder that Emma's loving and protective instincts toward her family are her dominant qualities. When Gilda prods further to see if Emma saw it happen, saw Connie sold off to bad people, I sense a bit of hesitation in Emma. Even though it was her idea to tell this half-truth, she doesn't like to lie to them. Norman jumps in to confirm and save her from the predicament. Don follows up by asking about Connie's fate. If you remember, we pointed out that he was close to her and guessed that it would be particularly hard to tell him the truth of what they saw. It seems not only are they going to avoid talking about her fate as food, they are not even going to confirm that she has died, as Norman continues the half-truth by pleading ignorance. This does not please Ray, something I'll talk about a lot more later on. 
Norman produces the score patterns of those who have been abducted to show how it's always been the lowest scoring person who is over six years old. While that does prove that there is something fishy about the so-called adoption process, Don and Gilda don't seem to try to figure out what it suggests beyond that. Instead, Emma interrupts them to get to the point of this whole meeting. We plan to escape, and we need your help. Preserving the notion that the others, like Connie, might still be out there works in their favor, but is also pretty firmly in the realm of the morally gray. If it motivates them to help save everyone else, then maybe it seems like the good kind of lie? But since they may learn the truth of both their deaths and that Emma knowingly lied about them, then it may seem to them individually as cruel and manipulative. Having Emma be the initiator of this decision gives such an interesting wrinkle to her character, setting her up for internal conflicts in the future. It also may illustrate a move away from her naivete and toward the more pragmatic decision-making we more associate with Norman and Ray. The flip side of this is Ray, arguably the most Machiavellian out of the three, he's the one who is most upset at the deception. It's a reversal of the behavior from Emma. If someone had told me one of the trio lies about the reality and a different one gets upset about the deception, I definitely would have not assumed correctly about which did which. Once Emma has left them, Ray immediately lets his displeasure be known to Norman. He's upset at the cruelty of the lie if Don and Gilda are not the spies, especially the giving of false hope about Connie or others being alive. He wants to know how and when Norman will tell the truth, or even if he will be able to. It's interesting that he can be so frank to Norman, but says nothing to Emma. He may not think he can handle her very well. To Norman, though, these are problems for another day. They are still guessing that either could be the spy, and so for everyone to be on the level, he has set up a trap to try to catch the informant. He tells Ray that he's going to give them conflicting information about where the rope is hidden. And though Ray is worried about what happens if they check and there's nothing there, Norman assures him that he's thought it all through. He tells Ray that they must outwit Mom. Of course, Norman already knows at this point that the next step to outwitting Mom will be outwitting Ray. The way Norman behaves in this scene, by the way, where he mediates a bit between Ray and Emma, has given me a new suspicion about a future turn in the story. Um, I will discuss this possible speculation as the very last thing in the video. There is a brief bit after this where Emma and Gilda are reconnecting after the library meeting helped clear the air between them, and made Emma aware of how her changed behavior was affecting others. Gilda asks Emma if they will be together from now on, and Emma reassures her that it is so. Gilda, I know you don't realize that you're in a story, but you just can't say things like that. Actually, quite apart from the implied death flag, her statement helps reinforce the subtext of the next scene. Once again, we note the narrative clock pattern, the calendar and its crossed off days being shown before and after this scene on the bed. We skip forward in time for the start of our next scene, with everyone apparently sleeping. Gilda rises in a controlled way to suggest that she had remained awake and after putting on her glasses, glances around with suspicion to ensure everyone is asleep. She is almost certainly paying special attention to Emma. She leaves the room, and we discover that Emma had also lain awake while pretending otherwise, or else she wouldn't have fooled Gilda. It seems that despite how much Emma doesn't want to suspect anyone, she has taken Ray's advice to heart, fighting against her natural naivete and lying in wait to witness anything that happens. 
The suspicion already cast on Gilda and her statement just before help increase the tension of this scene as we and Emma both wait to find out why Gilda would need to sneak out in the middle of the night. There's a little split scene misdirection by once again using the point of view camera and showing a note slipped into Isabella's office door. She opens the note and reads it aloud. I hadn't pointed this out yet, but so far everything we've seen written in the story has been in English. Ray's book, the calendar, the demon's shopping list, the names on their little test score report, and now the note that is being slipped to Isabella. She's reading it out loud so that non-English reading Japanese audience members know what it says. Even the character names are not Japanese, but ones that seem more at home in Western countries. This consistency suggests that our story is not set in Japan, though it could also suggest that whatever has happened to the world could have resulted in English becoming the lingua franca of the whole planet. Just something to take note of right now. Norman told Ray he was going to give Dawn the information about the rope being under his bed. Thus, the note suggests to us that it is Dawn, not Gilda, who is feeding information to Isabella. It was not Gilda's point of view we were in as we moved down the hallway. Gilda instead is paying a visit to the other caretaker, who opens the door and greets her in a way that makes it clear both to us and the listening Emma that Crone was expecting this clandestine meeting. We see Emma sneak out and get into position to eavesdrop so that we are sure to know she is witnessing this conversation as surely as we are. Now we don't need to run through this piecemeal. Um, this is the natural conclusion to Crone having singled Gilda out as a potential source of information after the game of tag in last episode. This also reinforces that she is not doing as Isabella asks and giving up on identifying which children know the secret. But it also gives an innocuous reason for Gilda's midnight meeting. She has been concerned because of Emma's strange behavior and was set to talk to Crone about it. The timing of coming clean with Gilda, sorta, ends up becoming important, as she now realizes that she can't reveal the truth herself or even suggest that Emma might be hiding something. Instead, it was just a misunderstanding between kids, nothing for Crone to worry about. It's important for Emma to hear this exchange because it effectively clears Gilda in her mind, and her immediate relief is obvious. But, like we've said before, Crone is no fool, and attempts to surprise Gilda by dropping the facade. This just ups the tension further because now there are two risks in play. There's the chance that Gilda will reveal what she knows, even accidentally, which helps Crone build a better picture of their secret plan. The other is that Crone will assume Emma really did tell her everything and will begin speaking about demons and food and all that. Since Gilda doesn't know that part, she probably will be unable to hide her confusion. It also will shatter the newly restored trust, as Gilda will be faced with two different sides that have both hidden things from her. It does not actually progress to this stage, though this will be a tension that hangs over the group until the full truth is out. Crone even concludes the meeting by telling her to return if she ever thinks Emma has lied to her. Because she whispers this, I think we might should assume that Emma doesn't hear this part and so may not immediately try to nip that in the bud by coming clean. The other interesting part is that Crone was sure Emma was part of it and asks Gilda who else knew. She then names Norman and Ray and waits to see if Gilda will volunteer anyone else. Even though she doesn't, we should note that Isabella only suggested there were two kids who knew the truth, 
Yet Crone is operating on the assumption that it is at least those three, and now Gilda as well. Anyway, Gilda doesn't bite, and it doesn't seem Crone learns anything new. We will later see her frustration when she is alone again, though it seems she is now going to try to make a move on someone else that she doesn't specify. When Gilda returns to her room, Emma has made the decision to reveal that she's awake. Guessing at least some of what this means, Gilda doesn't apologize or explain, but just goes in for the embrace, another reinforcement that their bond is in a stronger place. At least for now. Moving to the next morning, all our suspicion is cast in Dawn's direction. Emma and Gilda look on, knowing that Crone already tried to recruit one of them, while Ray and Norman talk about how the night's events have probably cleared Gilda. Since they are on the subject of traitors, Norman takes the opportunity to wonder why someone would be one in the first place. Ray has a ready answer, that there is merit to doing so, and further suggests that they may be offered a chance to avoid the normal fate and become an adult instead. Evidently, Norman had not considered the possibility of escape from this angle, that one could actually secure a guaranteed path to avoid becoming food by turning informant. The result of this notion comes up in a moment, though we first get to see Gilda and Dawn realize the purpose of the games of tag. Later that night, Norman interrupts Emma measuring the hallway with her feet, for a purpose we don't yet know. He wants to discuss Ray's suggestion about the traitor's possible motive, and explains the gist of it to her. If that was the situation, that they were securing their own survival in exchange for spying, how would Emma want to deal with the traitor? Leave them, or take them along? Emma doesn't have quite as ready an answer this time, but after thinking a moment, she is sure she'd want to take them along. In fact, even if they didn't want to, she says she'd force them to escape with the rest. Her rationale is that if they do effectively escape, that person's guarantee to live might actually be revoked. Thus, Emma's decision-making is once again grounded in her compassionate side. Her first thought was for the well-being of the traitor, that they may die the same as any of them if they are still around after the escape. And then, she indulges her naive side, saying that she also doesn't want to believe that such a traitor is a bad person. She believes they are family that grew up together, Regardless of whether a person gets in their way, or betrays them, or even points out her naivete, Emma wants to believe in them. Norman wears a somewhat surprised expression through all this. At the end, he thinks a moment as though making a decision, and smiles, saying, of course she would say that. Something that occurs to me between this scene and the earlier scene when he tells the half-truth to Dawn and Gilda is that Norman may be very, very smart, but he seems to look to Emma for his sense of values, that she is likely his moral compass. He is capable of always choosing the best option, as Ray puts it, yet he still defers at times to Emma's decision. Thus, I am tempted to believe that Norman may be so smart that he struggles to relate to the others, or even feel completely human. Emma is not just his closest friend, she is his idea of humanity. His desire to protect her and keep her smiling informs his desire to save the others. Anyway, Norman wanted this guidance before his next move, where he and Ray check the two rope locations. The one in the bathroom he was supposed to have told Gilda about is intact, while the one under his bed that he was supposed to have told Don about is absent. I confess that I find it odd that Isabella immediately moved on the information to take the rope. I understand it from Norman's point of view, because letting Isabella think that she has taken their only means of escape is an advantage, especially since they probably already have all they need secreted in the hole of that tree. 
From Isabella's point of view, though, doesn't this show her hand that she has an informant? Wouldn't she wait until closer to when she thought they might act to keep them from having time to adjust? Regardless, the rope is gone. Ray suggests this confirms Dawn as the traitor. Norman nods in agreement and then turns it on Ray, accusing him of being the traitor in truth. Now that very first scene of Norman hiding the rope under his bed connects to the present, suggesting that Norman has set up this test from the beginning. So if it didn't click for you right away, basically Norman didn't actually tell Don and Gilda those two locations for the rope. He only told Ray that he was going to tell them that. It's possible he told them nothing, or it's possible he has four locations he has hid rope and told them two that he didn't relate to Ray. That would allow him to discern a traitor from any among the three. It depends on whether he suspected anyone aside from Ray in the first place. Regardless, only Ray knew about the bed hiding spot. It was him delivering the note to Isabella in the middle of the night. This is a bit like how leaks are caught or prevented in creative industries. Every person gets a slightly different version of, say, a script, and if one leaks out, the differences which are unique to that script will allow the leak to be traced back to a single version and a single person. It will be interesting to see if there was any method to Ray's choice of the information he fed to Isabella. He could have given her both locations, and that's certainly what she probably would have wanted if her goal was to seize their rope. However, that would more easily cast suspicion his way. In this choice, Ray reveals that protecting himself is a more important consideration than doing what Isabella probably wants. Likewise, the best way to save himself from being marked as the traitor is to have someone else be the suspect. He had already put the idea of Phil being suspicious out there, and his insistence that Emma suspect everyone helps obscure his deception, because it seems counterintuitive to what he would do if he was guilty. I wonder if he chose Dawn to frame over Gilda for a specific reason, or if he simply chose the weaker hiding spot. After all, he was delivering the note at the same time Gilda was going to talk to Crone, so he couldn't have known she was going to exculpate herself that very night. If he was specifically choosing Dawn, it makes me wonder if he sees Dawn as more of a potential liability than Gilda. Of course, for me to believe that means I have a certain interpretation of what's going on with Ray. So, to talk about that further, let's move on to goals. So, beginning with Ray then, um, I mentioned last time that it seemed his primary goal was the escape goal, and that alone of the trio, his primary motivation was not focused on someone else. Because of this, I actually suggested it may actually be that Ray's primary goal is to save himself, and if an opportunity presents itself to do that without escaping, that he might take that option. If we assume he was being truthful in his answer to Norman about why someone might turn traitor, then I think we can go ahead and conclude that we guessed right, and saving himself is Ray's primary goal. While we will no doubt get a better picture of what led to Ray's actions in the near future, I think there is already enough evidence to suggest that Ray is not really working for the demons. Rather, it's more likely that he is hedging his bets. What Isabella and the demons want is over here, and what Emma and Norman want is over here, and Ray is just watching to see which one gives him the best chance to survive all this. The reason I believe that Ray is not just some extension of the demon's will is because of the way he has reacted at a few key points. He's only really become upset twice that we've seen. Once when Emma was insisting on saving everyone rather than just the three of them, 
And again, after Emma and Norman didn't tell Don and Gilda the whole story. If Ray had already made up his mind to sell out his friends and save himself, which of course would stop the whole escape in its tracks, uh, then there would be no reason for him to care about these developments. That he argues at all suggests he feels some stake in the discussion. That it's also the only time we see him show emotion really cements for me that Ray has not thrown his lot in with demons as a foregone conclusion. I said last time that unlike Norman and Emma, Ray isn't characterized as someone who picks a goal and pursues it doggedly. Instead, he is likely to reevaluate his best course of action moment to moment, and this is reflected in Crone's summary of his weakness, that he is both quick to make and abandon any decision. Anyway, I'm sure changes are coming our way in our trio's dynamic. For now, let us simply make save himself Ray's primary goal. Escaping is still on the table, but it's just a sub-goal of saving himself. I'm gonna put a question mark on the secrets goal because he certainly had secrets of his own and yet objected to hiding things from Don and Gilda. It's questionable now if he still feels the same way about the tracking devices and his responsibility there. Basically, Ray's goals are a mystery now until we understand more of how he came to this point and what he wants beyond his own deliverance. For Norman, we get evidence again of his Emma focus being primary when he asks her opinion on things or defers to her lead. I already mused on where I think this may come from for him in the walkthrough. Um, him making sure he knows what Emma would do with a traitor before springing the trap on Ray, I think just confirms that this is the correct order for his goals. I'm assuming we will see fallout from this next time in some part, but it may be that he would not have confronted Ray about his suspicions if not for Emma's input. Norman also shares the keep secrets goal with Emma, which I'll go ahead and talk about. Um, they expanded their circle of confidants this time, something we guessed before would be pursued cautiously. However, not only did they only bring two more into their confidence, they gave only enough information to inspire them to cooperate. As I already mentioned, this has some real potential consequences depending on the order in which the rest of the story comes out, uh, something I'll pick back up in conflicts. Um, while I'm no longer sure that Ray shares this goal with them in exactly the same way, it's interesting how he objects to the half-truth and false hope aspects of the meeting. I'm going to expand more on this for Ray and speculation. For Emma, I think her thoughts on what to do with the traitor also help confirm that the protect her family goal is primary. Escaping is still the means by which she hopes to do so, but it's the way she immediately thinks of the traitor's well-being that solidifies this driving motivation for her. While it's possible Norman was ready to sort the traitor into a category with the rest of their enemies, Emma instead thinks of all of them as a true family. She'll believe in one of them even if they're a willing agent of the demons. This goal also informs her decision about what she tells Don and Gilda. While there is the background possibility that one of them is the spy, and so there is some wisdom in not showing her entire hand, I think easing them into the awful reality arises from this goal of hers. She's trying to protect their psyche just as surely as their lives, and has first-hand experience with the awful shock of the whole picture. As we continue the story, I think there's some interesting potential to see what other choices she makes that are meant to protect the others, even at the expense of the whole truth or even her own well-being. Isabella's goals remain unchanged. She tried to nip Crone's meddling in the bud, owing again to her primary goal being to keep the breach a secret. She's proven savvy in her own right, 
so it's hard to guess now if she thinks she had changed Crone's course or not. At least, though, we know that she will confront the issue directly, and Crone also knows that now as well. Crone herself will get a new goal, bring her down. I'm uncertain if this should go above or below the become a house mom goal, as just after she stomps and rants and swears to bring Isabella low, she follows up by saying, and then I will be mom. I feel that either she has fixated on being the mom at this house in particular, which means that she does need to remove Isabella, or she ostensibly wants to be a mom, but the spite she feels towards Isabella means she will pursue her downfall even at the cost of her original ambition. I think bring her down should probably be the primary goal now, since Isabella just promised to help her become a mom if she just cooperates. But if that goal is specific to being the mom of this house, then it might still be her primary goal, with removing Isabella simply a step on the way. Ironically, if that is the case, then whatever Isabella is after by being the golden child and producing the supreme goods may have led to her leaving the house anyway, in which case Crone's meddling will turn out to get in the way of what she wanted. So the major conflict for this episode was sorting out the matter of the traitor. Gilda has been cleared, and Don is probably off the hook as well. At least, I felt his reactions in the library seemed pretty genuine. I'm not sure he's savvy enough to try to con them. Ray is identified as the informant in the middle of the night, and a lot of his unusual behavior that I pointed out before goes hand in hand with his position as traitor. This conflict is not resolved, however. First of all, we don't know how this is going to pan out now. Ray likely didn't betray them on a whim, and so getting busted is not necessarily enough to make him give up the role and whatever he gains from it. Whether they can trust him, even if he claims to be on their side, will become an ongoing background threat. That situation aside, there's no guarantee that Ray is the only traitor in their midst. He is certainly the most dangerous possible culprit, aside from maybe Norman, but a younger child keeping tabs or innocuously eavesdropping could just as easily wreck everything. Outing Ray may very well create a false sense of security that they have plugged the only leak making them vulnerable to betrayal from an unexpected direction. In Caretakers Suspect Them, Crone definitely believes that our trio knows the truth, and it seems she suspects Gilda enough to counter among them. She implies that she will keep looking for another child to turn informant for her. This may lead her to identify all five of the children in the know right now, but it might also create a new traitor, even if they don't realize that this is what they've become. At the very least, the scrutiny from both directions is like to produce another wrinkle in their plans for escape. The tracking device's conflict may be more complicated now. Ray says it will take him 10 days, but he's also informing to Isabella. Can he actually break them in 10 days, and he's simply hedging his bets? Or is him taking over the matter of the devices a way to keep them from being defeated? with him having no intention to break them because it keeps them from escaping and ruining whatever deal he has struck. We'll have to wait on more information about Ray to know what our final status is here. Finally, I'll add a new conflict, Deception Among Us. Uh, basically, while I understand the rationale in giving Don and Gilda the secrets the way that they did, they now have a ticking time bomb on their hands. Regardless of good intentions, Don and Gilda are unlikely to react positively to being deceived so deliberately. Further, hiding the demons and food and all that is one thing, 
but allowing them to believe that the other children may be alive when they know they are dead is going to be a bitter pill to swallow. How and when they find out more, and who they find out from, is going to determine how this plays out. But it's hard to imagine that no complication at all will arise from this. This is another one we might have a better idea of after we are better informed about Rey. So time for theme. The narrative clock motif is still in full effect, and I tried to point out a few examples as we went along of the frequent clock and calendar shots. Our clock has potentially moved up as well, with Norman declaring that they will try to escape in 10 days, November the 8th. However, that was dependent on Ray's timeline for breaking the tracking devices, which may be in question now. Moving up their leave date was also a move to steal a march on Isabella. So if Ray has told her of this newer date, then the efficacy of that strategy has been neutered. One more thing that depends on what we learn about Ray and what he will do from now on. Our tag and chess metaphor has a little bearing on my final speculation, so I won't fully dive into it now, um, but I do want to point out two things. One is that Gilda and Dawn got to see that the game of tag was practice for running away. Their discomfort at their realization goes hand in hand with what we talked about last time, that having the innocent kids game of tag actually be practice for their survival is an echo of how their seemingly innocent existence is actually a matter of life and death as they race against the clock. Having the veil lifted during the library scene is thus reflected in Don and Gilda also seeing how serious this game of tag has become. The other thing to point out is how Norman's two moves this time also look a bit like a chess match in action. Chess at a very high level is usually a very conservative game, because the openings and closings are largely all known and memorized. Masters can get a sense of what their opponents are probably aiming for long before it happens because of the familiarity. Thus, there is a certain level where really unpredictable moves from an amateur can catch a master off guard and even result in victory. Moving the timetable way up like Norman has done is a big disadvantage for their preparation and is so aggressive, it's almost certainly to blindside Isabella. It's the opposite of the conservative move and counter move the two appear to be playing. Likewise, Norman thinking several steps ahead of how to trap Ray and confirm him as traitor is a kind of strategy one must employ to win at chess. You cannot suddenly spring a check or checkmate on someone. It requires several intermediary steps of your pieces to create the opening, and one must guess with some accuracy about what moves their opponent will be taking in the meantime. This may even involve showing one intention by moving pieces towards some obvious board position, only to allow an overlooked piece to be the one that captures the key opposing piece or puts the king in check. Norman had to put a lot of steps in motion to set Ray up as he did, but the most important thing was to make Ray believe that he was looking elsewhere. Only then did Ray feel safe in informing on the rope position to cast suspicion somewhere else, the very thing that exposed him. So paranoia as technique is something I'll still keep separate for now. This is really about the technical or artistic choices the show is making to increase the sense of anxiety and isolation and paranoia that afflict our characters. They are basically employing horror film techniques, and this is largely in service of tone. However, because of at least one traitor in their midst, the paranoia is not just for effect, but is largely justified. I'll cover this more thoroughly in the trust and betrayal theme, 
leaving this one focused more on the technique employed. I mentioned several uses of the point of view camera in this episode. Um, it's the most direct way to put the audience in the shoes of characters, and so can be used at times to underscore which character's perspective we are experiencing the story from. However, in a series with a lot of mystery or paranoia, the technique can be used to increase anxiety for the audience because we may not necessarily know whose viewpoint we are in. This works in The Promised Neverland because we have a semi-omniscient third-person point of view. We could theoretically be in anyone's body during the slow walk up the stairs. We've had scenes where we are in Crone's viewpoint, and Isabella's, and Norman's, and Emma's, and even the demons. We shouldn't automatically assume we know what we're seeing when this technique is used, as the camera doesn't look down, or look in a mirror, or give any other indicator as to whose eyes we see through. The long use of this technique in episode ends up being Emma, while the later use ends up being Ray. It becomes a way to obscure information from us, ironically, by putting us as close as possible into a character's viewpoint. Aside from that, there is the persistent use of light and shadow, especially of showing light surrounded by the dark. The use of lanterns creates scenes with pools of light hemmed in on all sides by darkness, and creates strong directional lighting for tense scenes. Shots of the orphanage in the darkness, or Isabella delivering Connie at the beginning, likewise emphasize how great the expanse of dark unknown that surrounds them, just as surely as they are surrounded by the darkness of their own ignorance about the world they inhabit. They are isolated from humanity and any hope of outside help. Contrastingly, the daylight scenes are usually very well lit, pastoral and idyllic, and altogether safe-seeming. There have been exceptions, such as the threat of storm when Isabella reveals the existence of the tracking devices, but generally we have bright daytime, with green grass and blue skies and children playing in spotless white clothing. This serves to make the sparse and uneven lighting of nighttime seem all the more pronounced, and all the more menacing. Anyway, our related theme is trust and betrayal, something I said last time was likely to be an ongoing pattern. It is really the dominant theme of this episode, with questions of who to trust, what to do when betrayal may loom, and how to choose one's course when traitors and danger may lurk around any corner. This tension does not belong to the kids alone, as the episode actually begins with Isabella dressing Crone down for acting on her own volition to root out the truth of the breach. Though Isabella essentially trusted Crone with the truth of why she was called in, she now has to contend with, and even assume, that Crone will look for a chance to betray her. She is trying to head this off in the opening scene, as the two of them working at cross-purposes is going to make them less effective in protecting the goods. Isabella tells Crone that she is insurance, that she is a guard, that she only has to obey. Isabella wants to be able to trust that Crone will operate like an extension of her will, but Crone is her own person with her own ambition, and she does not handle this sort of chastising very well. In fact, Crone is now more driven to betray Isabella, and may perhaps do so even if it doesn't advance her other goals. The children's enemies are not a united front against them. Unfortunately, the children are not united either. The identity of the traitor has been uncovered, but even if Ray is the only one, the damage is not undone. The half-truths told to Dawn and Gilda are now set up as a potential disaster, 
Emma's fear of betrayal probably contributed to this decision, and yet by not trusting them fully, they will one day have a reason to trust her less in turn. Trust is hard to build, but easy to lose. I wouldn't blame Don especially from feeling betrayed by Emma if he learns she allowed him to keep hoping Connie could be saved when it was actually impossible. The children are outgunned and outnumbered in the world, and are going to have to trust each other to have any hope of survival. Yet even the threat of a betrayal in their midst is enough to make them pull their trust backward. Of course, the betrayal from Isabella is the real seed of chaos in all this. Being fooled by someone you trust as much as your de facto parent suddenly calls all of your trusting behavior into question. It's not a coincidence that so many people with abusive parents grow up to have trust issues. Being betrayed doesn't just erode your trust in the betrayer, it erodes your trust in yourself, in your own judgment about who you can afford to rely on in the future. You may, on some subconscious level, even feel at fault for having extended trust to the wrong person in the first place. You can probably see how easily that might spiral out of control and into full-blown paranoia. Thus, I think it's a critical moment when Emma decides to believe in the person who is the traitor. Suspecting Gilda and being wrong was awful for Emma, and she hated how she felt during the break and tag when she looked around at the other kids suspiciously. I think going forward, she would rather risk betrayal than stop trusting the others. I could see that being a critical part of unifying them against the trials to come, even if it one day brings some misfortune. There's some irony then in having Emma's distrust of Gilda, which is what causes her to eavesdrop, end up being the very act that clears her suspicions. The fear of betrayal ends up strengthening her trust. What will be interesting to see then is whether Norman shares Ray's betrayal with the rest, or even with Emma. Since there is a risk of a cascade effect of lost trust, there is some logic to keeping the trio above suspicion. After all, they will have to convince the rest that they are more trustworthy than their mom, and Ray's actions undermine that pretty severely. This becomes even more of a risk to the children's cohesiveness if it turns out that Ray was trading information in exchange for being spared. If others get wind of that, you have a classic prisoner's dilemma on your hands. On top of all this, as I already said in Conflicts, you still have the issue of whether you can trust Ray to help at all anymore or not feed more information to Isabella, or even to be telling the truth about breaking the tracking devices. If Norman keeps Ray's identity as traitor a secret, then the worry of some other traitor will still be a cloud hanging over Emma, even if she has decided she wants to trust people from now on. The series is definitely setting itself up to be a tension between those who need to trust each other to survive, and yet have good reason to suspect that their trust is misplaced. Finally, there's the pattern that last time I didn't quite name. Um, some people suggested something like high risk, high reward, um, and that's certainly true of the child selection process or Isabella's Gambit. Uh, however, I also wanted to wait and see if hubris was going to be a related pattern or if this behavior was purely about gambling for better position. I thought about calling it brinkmanship, but due to a less serious example this time, I've decided to call this pattern Push Your Luck. Specifically, it's about characters taking a path with an increased chance of fallout to try to secure some advantage. It's not about two paths they must choose between, but rather situations where there is a safer default choice and they decide to push their luck instead. 
The examples we talked about last time were the culling process for the children, which concentrates the smartest and oldest kids together. Uh, Isabella's decision to hide the breach of secrets in order to be the hero with the supreme goods at the right time, and Crone's decision to betray Isabella for her own promotion. There were less risky ways to proceed for all these scenarios, yet by reaching for something loftier, they have enabled their own downfall. Pushing your luck is basically taking an action for advantage, yet setting yourself up for potential disaster with that same action. The example this time around was Ray's attempt to frame Dawn. Perhaps the discussion about a traitor last time made him feel a little under the gun, as Ray earlier tried to raise suspicions about Phil and chastise Emma for not being suspicious enough. He seems to want them to pick someone to distrust, and then gives a direction away for himself for that distrust to be pointed. However, his action in giving the rope's location to Isabella and framing Dawn is the very thing that leads to Norman confirming that he is traitorous. Had he simply done nothing, he might have skated by, or been able to come clean at a better moment. Instead, he pushed his luck, and it led to his discovery. Beside Ray's example, I do want to point out that even though Crone's original decision to betray Isabella was an instance of this pattern, it looks like she is actually shifting away from it now. Her behavior this time suggests that she is more motivated by sticking it to Isabella than securing advantage for herself. It's become spite rather than ambition. So again, our retooled speculation section begins by going through our remaining mysteries and what we think about them, with a more purely speculative section afterwards. Most of our remaining mysteries got no advancement this time at all, so let us scroll all the way down to the one that did. Who is the traitor? Now, I already mentioned a couple times that just because Ray has been outed as traitor does not mean he was the only one. I proposed last time that it could be an older child who was given a full understanding of the predicament, with the option to save themselves from becoming food uh, by informing on the others. So far, that seems like it will be the case with Ray. I also suggested that it's possible a younger child could be recruited to do surveillance without really understanding the full implications of what they were doing, and I think that is still a possibility. We were right to assume that Gilda was being telegraphed too strongly as traitor to really be so. She did have something that caused her to act suspicious, but now we've seen what that was about as well. So I will thus be changing this one to, is there another traitor? With the original question answered, at least as far as the identity goes. To move on to the other speculations, we just had two of these last time, and they have both already come into play. The first was that Ray has secrets. Obviously, being Isabella's informant was the big one here. However, the thing I talked about more was that I got the sense Ray already knew something was different about the outside world. He is not as surprised as the others about the truth of things. He was also quick to assert that things Isabella had told them were lies, and his thoughts about what to do if he went outside were about surviving first and foremost. One of the things the show is certain to explore soon, if not next, is the why of Ray's decision to inform on the rest, and what steps led to that decision. The why, I think I already understand. That his hypothetical answer to Norman about why someone would be a traitor matches his real answer. Ray is motivated by his own survival rather than the welfare of others, at least in order of priority and informing on the rest to be spared the fate of becoming food is the safest play here. 
Since we see Crone make a similar offer to Gilda, it definitely feels like this is the kind of arrangement the caretakers may offer children from time to time. Ray's answer also suggests that this may be one of the ways children are chosen to become adults rather than their original fate. I guess the willingness to betray your own species to demon kind is the kind of quality they are looking for in the humans they spare for other tasks. Selling out your fellow children may be the very test one has to pass to live beyond childhood. Now, how it got to the point where he had such an offer is a different mystery. One thing emphasized about Ray is how much time he spends reading and how much knowledge he has. This is a guy incredibly curious about the world and hungry for information. It seems reasonable to me that this drive would eventually lead him to stumble on some discrepancies, some things that didn't make sense based on what he knew of their situation. We in the audience have the context to realize that the walled-in and isolated orphanage is unusual, but the kids inside don't have that context. It's the only world they know. However, Ray's reading could eventually give him this outsider point of view, and he may have begun poking around further to feed his suspicions. I think a potential key here is that Ray hates being lied to. As I said, he was quick to accuse Isabella of lying about the gate when they were younger, and of lying about the fence later on. When Emma gives Dawn and Gilda the half-truths about their situation, it absolutely ruffles his feathers. Here's a guy informing on his only friends to those who would offer them up as a demon snack, and yet he's indignant about hiding the full truth to others. So I think obscuring truth bothers Ray. It's at odds with his curiosity and so kind of offends him. This raises an obvious question. Why throw your lot in with the demons if they have perpetuated the biggest lie of all? Well, this could be simply because it's the pragmatic way to find out the real truth of the world, but I think it might rather be that he has not actually thrown his lot in with demon kind. I've suggested this already, but I think it's as likely that Ray is playing both sides and trying to figure out which one gives him the best chance of survival. I'm not sure how much he understood about the outside world at the start of the series. However, he is the one who suggests to Norman and Emma that they could still make it to the gates that fateful night, and he watches them go and waits for their return. Seems, in retrospect, that he might have waited to find out more details about what happens when kids are shipped out, but without putting himself at risk. He might later have decided that escaping with Norman and Emma was his best play, regardless of what arrangement he might already have with Isabella. After all, he probably feels he can trust them more than he trusts her, which might be another reason their deception of Dawn and Gilda has upset him. However, when Emma insists on taking everyone, it seems a lot less like his best play. That is probably why he is so much more upset about her stubbornness than he is about the fact that they are basically livestock. Thus, he must maintain or initiate some arrangement with Isabella in case the escape plan does not look to work out. So my guess about Ray is that he is their ally and will escape with them so long as it looks like they can succeed. However, he was hoping to maintain a backup plan that lets him survive at their expense if it looks like they will fail instead, which is obviously something he would keep quiet from the others. I don't think he would be bothered by Emma's plan to take them all, or perturbed by Norman moving their timeline up if he never intended to go with them. 
There is always the possibility that he overreacts to being cornered and does something extreme, like try to silence Norman. After all, he indicated he was willing to use violence to keep Isabella or Crone from raising the alarm. I'm not sure this is the most likely thing to happen next, but I will grant that the story has allowed for the possibility. Emma's decision about how to treat the traitor then becomes a huge part of how the story turns. Anyway, we'll leave that where it is for now, because I think there are more secrets and backstory to uncover. The other one was about spreading the secret to others, especially believing it was likely that Dawn and Gilda would be next. This was on point, as was the belief that it would be a challenge to decide how to tell them. The decision they made was to withhold the full truth, which we've gone over a bit, but the need to bring more people into their confidence was going to force their hand sooner rather than later anyway. We'll see if this comes back to bite them, but we will cross this off for now. I uh, then have two new things to add. One is more of a storytelling prediction, um, but I think we will explore the pasts of these characters, especially the five most central ones that I specified last time. Our two caretakers have already had moments that seem to connect to something in their pasts in a way that suggests more information will be forthcoming. For Isabella, it was the song she was humming as she led Connie away, and for Crone, it's the much-abused baby doll. For our trio, we already began with a scene in their past where they look through the gate and wonder about it. Since Ray's past is certainly going to be explored to explain why he chose to play informant, I'm guessing we will dive into some of his earlier years soon, and perhaps even next. Our end credits further suggest the past may get its day in the limelight. I pointed out before the possibility that this little girl looking out the window may be Isabella as a child. There is likewise a little girl reading that could be meant to be Crone, and there's definitely a scene showing our trio when they were much younger, surrounded by older kids who have probably all met their doom in the meantime. Looking at that pattern, we might should expect other elements of these credits to pop up in the future, such as the little owl symbol on this book that is likewise the last image of the credit sequence. Additionally, the child with the little black cat doll being tucked in, or the girl putting a flower wreath on another. There's even a pair of kids under a tree with a keyboard of all things, which immediately makes me wonder if that is the origin of the song that Isabella hums. She could even be the other child in that shot. It certainly would be interesting to see how Isabella and Crone and other stories diverged such that they became adults, and what they went through or chose to do that led to here. Definitely the running, desperate girl with long black hair and the boy with the butterfly seem like they suggest a traumatic moment from the past. So I am guessing that our tale will not solely be this constant forward pressure of cliffhangers and intrigue, and we'll dive backwards at some point to give our characters increased complexity. This will help us understand the full stakes of their cat and mouse game, and why each acts as they do. Lastly, a final speculation. This one is reaching way out with a lot less to substantiate it. Um, I'm frequently wrong about these far-reaching or far-future guesses. Um, however, if I am right, then it becomes a possible massive spoiler. So I urge you that if you're sensitive to having someone's guesses steal your future enjoyment, you might consider skipping this one. Okay? Okay. Now this is basically all about Norman. It occurred to me because of how he mediates between Emma and Ray. 
Emma leads with her heart and resists pragmatic decisions that conflict with what she feels is right. Ray, instead, is purely pragmatic, taking the best option for himself as it is presented, a decision devoid of emotion. Right now, they can work together because each is willing to defer to Norman's judgment. He basically marries the moral guidance he gets from Emma with the results-oriented approach of Ray. Take him away, and you have a high-drama scenario, as their more extreme natures would have to vie against one another for supremacy. Emma's passionate naivete against Ray's ruthless logical progression. That sounds like a pretty tense and interesting dynamic, so I now kind of suspect that this might happen. That is, I guess that Norman will be removed from the story, perhaps at midpoint, perhaps the act two break, perhaps during the escape or the finale, if those don't end up being the same thing. In particular, I could see Norman sacrificing himself to enable the rest to escape. That is in line with his current character goal ordering, as I think him enabling Emma to protect the rest is more important than his own escape. Additionally, Norman is proving to be so good at outthinking everyone else that he might relax the tension in the story. After a while, we won't be surprised when they come up with a way to overcome each obstacle because Norman has done so continually. Thus, if his last master stroke is a Thanatos gambit to free everyone else from an otherwise impossible situation, then it will both be one last example of his brilliance and remove that ongoing brilliance from the story. This even jives with the chess analogy, as chess is a game in which a player may sacrifice a powerful piece if it gives them a more advantageous board position. It definitely would not be something Isabella is expecting, which could be exactly why it works. It would also create a really interesting upheaval for Emma, and depending on how much she learns about Ray, could cause a very dramatic situation in the leadership position for their little posse of orphans. Thus, even though there isn't much in the way of foreshadowing this, the potential story it creates has such appeal that I find it a believable direction they may take it. Certainly, the threat will be very real from then on if we don't think of it that way right now. Alright, that is all for today. Please be mindful of the spoiler-like nature of this last speculation if you decide to talk about it in the comments. I'll see you next week. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.